You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash rajim Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan, the accursed. In the name of Allah, the Most Gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of the Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Summer Angelis, and we will be with you, God willing, all the way up until nine o'clock. So, if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials on. X, formerly known as Twitter, and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, if you are familiar with the uh, breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam uh, radio station, especially on Tuesday's uh, breakfast show, um, you'll know that we usually speak about three different topics, and today is no different. We're going to be th- talking about three uh, very important topics. Um, the first one being the parallels between Iraq's past and the current situation in Gaza. Um, the second topic is in regards to the massive impact of AI in 2023 that we saw and future life. Um, and then last but not least, we're going to be speaking about trachoma, the leading cause of infectious blindness. Uh, we do have some esteemed guests uh, who we, we will be speaking with today as well in regards to these topics. Um, and if you would like to get involved, then remember, this is your radio station and we do love for you to voice your opinion. So do pick up the phone and give us a call zero to zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you um but before we get into um these uh, main topics for the day uh, we usually speak about the 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 roundup of the news as well but i think uh, since we have uh, a lot to cover we'll uh, we'll just be getting straight into these pretty much uh, but before we do so Jalees how are you doing this morning by the grace of god almighty i am doing well and i hope our listener as well is doing well too and yourself summer how are you doing very good very good thank you by the grace of allah the almighty um the the, the weather um obviously um the last couple of days it has been drizzling and raining um a, a bit a bit wet a bit cold as well windy as well yeah um what's it looking like today and going forward till about uh, t- t- till the end of the week as well yeah sure so so the latest forecast for uk we see today we'll see bright spells in central areas to start but a band of rain would slowly spread northwards followed by clear spells and showers in south uh, in, in the south by the evening uh, windy in the south and far north then moving on to tonight we see persistent rain across northern areas this evening will push north eastwards affecting the far northeast throughout brisk winds in the far north and south and variable cloud and showers elsewhere now if we move on cloudy or for wednesday we move on that um, uh, cloudy and windy with spells of rain and hill snow in the far northeast of scotland tomorrow variable cloud and showers elsewhere across the uk occasionally heavy blustery and along southern coast an outlook for the week, that is Thursday to Saturday, we see cloudy in the north on Thursday with scattered showers, wintry on the hills in northern Scotland, drier and brighter in the south, but chances of or chance of some showers in places. Winds easing, rather cloudy with a few showers lingering around on Friday, mainly in coastal areas. 
uh, occasional bright spells, especially in the southwest. Most dry on Saturday with variable cloud, and that is of course chillier as well. So, gusty winds and heavy rain for the for the next couple of days. Um, we see that's how the New Year's has started for us in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, just I think uh, quickly, like I said, we do have a lot to cover, uh, so we won't be going through the newspaper articles uh, today. Um, just one um, quick uh, uh, update that I'd like to give in regards to the uh, the, the the death toll in uh, in Japan from the from the um, earthquake as well, um, and this has actually reached uh, thirty, uh, according to Ishikawa Prefecture officials. At least thirty people have now uh, been confirmed dead. The region was the epicenter of uh, Monday's seven point six magnitude earthquake, um, and just a quick. Uh, breakdown um basically um or, or we can actually see that uh, japan is uh, r- not really a stranger to 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 earthquakes and um how japan has learned to live with earthquakes is basically that the island nation uh, experiences around 1500 each year and it's been nearly 13 years since the devastating earthquake and tsunami that triggered an accident at a nuclear plant uh, in Fukushima. Um, But on Monday, as uh, shaking began in Ishikawa and the tsunami alarms began sounding, it did bring back memories, according to the news um, uh, outlets from there as well. Um, And yet this most uh, recent quake is uh, also a remarkable story of Japan's (coughs) success. There's been widespread uh, destruction of roads and bridges and it uh, unleashed massive landslides. But the vast majority of buildings are still standing uh, by the grace of Allah the Almighty. Um, so, yeah, if you if you would like to get more on that, then uh, you can visit the BBC website um, and read up on that as well. And they are giving um, updates as well. Um, in regards to whatever is happening over there, uh, where people are taking refuge, like the airports, etc., um, and the death toll uh, as well. Um, but yeah, before uh, I think, Jalis, uh, let's get straight into uh, the topics. Uh, just a quick reminder for our listener: um, the topics that we're discussing today in the first hour, up until the eight o'clock news, uh, God willing, we'll be discussing the parallels between Iraq's past and the current situation in Gaza. Um, in After the news, we're going to be speaking about the massive impact of AI in 2023 and future life. Um, and last but not least, we'll be speaking about trachoma, the leading cause of infectious blindness. So these are the three topics for the day. If you do want to get involved, then remember, you can always give us a call. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. So... There's been an article uh, which reflects on the author's experiences as a doctor in Iraq discussing the devastating impact of wars on healthcare systems. The author highlights the parallels between Iraq's past and the current situation in Gaza, excuse me, where healthcare systems are under immense strain due to war, as you can imagine. Targeting hospitals during war, although illegal, has become distressingly common in various wars, leading to, of course, dire consequences. The destruction of healthcare infrastructure not only affects immediate care, but also contributes to long-term health crisis. 
such as the spread of antibiotic resident, uh, resistant bacteria. The author draws attention to the lasting effects of war on healthcare systems, emphasizing the urgent need to end war and restore medical services to prevent further suffering. Um, and we did uh, talk about a similar topic uh, on last week's breakfast show as well, here on Tuesday again. Um, and uh, in that, we were talking about how there's different ways um, in which the death toll rises uh, in such places, uh, even when... Um, I mean, uh, uh, of course, uh, not talking about uh, bombing and uh, and all of these other things, but other things like um, the, the the healthcare system and the the how um, there's so much bacteria and all of these things as well. And the result um, of the conflict as well, right? Oh yes, most most certainly, most certainly. And so, if if our listener would like to revisit that. Um, then of course you can do so. It's uh, up on our SoundCloud at www.voiceofislam.org, um, and uh, not just that uh, show, but uh, all of our other shows: Breakfast Show, Drive Time, the recorded shows as well, uh, Living History, and all the other ones as well. So do visit them, and you can uh, listen to all of our previous shows on that as well. Um, Jalees, what parallels does the author draw between Iraq's past and the current situation in Gaza regarding the enormous burden facing the health system due to the war? Yeah, so so of course the the author um, of this article that we are talking about, which is an opinion piece which was published in the New York Times, um, the title of the the article, if anyone is interested in reading, is, um, is uh, I was a doctor in Iraq. I am seeing a nightmare play out again. Now, this was, of, um, of course, an article written by a uh, Omar Diwachi. So, Doctor Diwachi wrote this uh, article. And um, so, so to answer your question, uh, Summer, um, the the writer in the article he points out some, you know, some huge, uh, you know, similarities between what happened to healthcare in Iraq during past wars and what's going on now in Gaza. Uh, in both situations, the hospitals, like you mentioned earlier, um, the hospitals and health matters uh, uh, and hospitals and places were, were seriously impacted. Right, So this caused um, a lack of importance, uh, important supplies, more important, uh, lack of important supplies. And then people in result of that getting sick and even hospitals themselves getting targeted. Now, the writer is... Uh, he stresses that uh, when health places turn into battle zones, it's not just a problem for you know getting quick help. It messes up. Uh, it, it has the, the impacts are, are quite life long, quite lifelong, and 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 cause a lot of health issues. Now, I just I'd like to quote one sentence that he mentioned, which sort of sums up uh, what I've just mentioned. And he, he writes that. When healthcare services, infrastructure and expertise are destroyed during war, they are often lost forever. Now, uh, anyone who's, uh, who, who has read this and anyone who's, um, who's uh, be, been up to date with what is happening in the news they would know that after after hearing this, you know, someone who has who was a doctor in Iraq and who has seen the same nightmare play out again, when he says or when they say that uh, when when people say that this that they are often you know lost forever, these healthcare services, it's a alarming situation, um, which of course um, you know is, is is something that as as 
as who, who people of the same, you know, as as people of the the world, we should understand that it's it's not just something that's happening in one particular place. It's something that would have, uh, you know, lifelong uh, um, results as well, and not just it won't just affect people today, but of course it it, it affects people of um, you know of, of future generations as well. Now. So we've we've talked about you know the burden of of facing you know health issues health you know, systems during during times of conflict. There's a there's a very beautiful episode in the history of Islam that um, and and this is this is mentioned by a a British Orientalist and historian of Islamic art in his book. He writes that the book is uh, the preaching of Islam, a history of uh, of the propagation of the Muslim faith. Uh, he mentions an incident. With the second caliph, Hazrat Umar, uh, uh, the caliph Umar, whilst hi- uh, the, the the author mentions that whilst uh, highlighting the topic of how uh, uh, Umar, the the caliph Umar, treated people of other faiths, it has been recorded that he ordered an allowance of money and food to be made available to some Christian lepers. As recorded uh, in uh, various other historical serv- uh, historical um, uh, doc- uh, books as well, for example, at Tabari as well, uh, which is somewhere where you can find uh, the history of Islam. Um, it, is, it is stated that charity towards lepers was shown again by the Umayyad Caliph Al Walid, and who, who who established a a sort of a place for for such people um for lepers in 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 Damascus and this did not just this did not serve as a as a hospital as known today but as a shelter and a place where those infected could isolate from society you know and th- this this goes to show that this is what islam is it's about helping people it's about making uh whether it be hospitals or places where people can attain medical service and um you know whether, regardless of 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 their of their faith and and it's it's all about you know helping humanity and and this is something that Islam stresses uh, a lot and we can see from the from from history of Islam as well that this is something that Islam has always stood for. I mean, even in the Holy Quran, it's uh, when 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 we talk about um, uh, when the Holy Quran talks about uh, whoever kills. Uh, any person, it's it's meaning that it, it's it's as if he had slain mankind entirely, and this is the importance that Islam gives to to a a single soul. That it, its importance is of that uh, is, is 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 so so grand that it's as if if you if a person kills one person, it's as if he has. Uh, committed, you know, uh, has, has slain mankind entirely. Hmm. I mean, such a powerful verse of the Holy Quran in which we can see the importance and the sanctity of human life as well. Um, it's uh, it beautifully just summarizes uh, and it's, uh, encapsulates this teaching of Islam, which is basically, like you said, uh, the killing of one person is akin of killing the whole of mankind, and the saving of one person is as if you've saved the whole of humanity. And so, in any uh, situation that you see yourself in, in which you can assist someone and save their life, this is something which uh, Islam has laid a great amount of emphasis on. Um, and so, this is something that we should definitely be looking at as well. 
Um, we've spoken with Dr. Andreas Krieg, who's uh, an associate professor at the School of Security Studies at King's College London, a fellow at the Institute of Middle Eastern Studies, currently seconded to the Royal College of Defence Studies. Um, he's also the director of the London-based political risk company uh, MENA Analytica, um, and we spoke to him in regards to this, and there's some very interesting points that uh, I'm sure you'd like to listen to as well. So let me start by asking you, uh, based on your experience in the Gulf region as a whole, Palestine, Israel, and Syria, how do you see the geopolitical dynamics shaping the region um, under the current circumstances? So what we see is that the the overall trend has been, for the last couple of years, a withdrawal of the United States as the former sort of protecting force for most of the Arab countries. Um, And their withdrawal from the region has basically meant that the region has been left uh, left to its own devices. So the U.S. has not really played a leadership role. It has left a vacuum that other countries were uh, able to or were trying to fill, including some of the international competitors, geopolitical competitors such as China and Russia. They're not doing necessarily a very good job in doing that. And then on on the other hand, you know, a lot of has been left to to regional players as well. So we've seen over the last decade the rise of the Gulf states, uh, post-Arab Spring in particular, who've taken over more responsibility and have been trying to shape the region in their own image. Um, And a lot of the competition and a lot of the fault lines, ideological fault lines particularly in the region, have been shaped by the divisions within the Gulf as well over how to manage the outcome of the Arab Spring and how to rebuild the region after the Arab Spring. And uh, neither side has really done a very good job in doing that and, and left the region a lot weaker and a lot more in, in disarray than it was pre-Arab Spring. Um, the U.S. government in Israel um, appear to be joined at the hip. What, how do you see this playing out in view of the shifting public opinion uh, in Europe and elsewhere around the world as well? And, and the U.S. government seems to be isolated now in terms of its, uh, its totally unconditional support to Israel, even after the massacre that we've seen in, in Palestine recently. So how do you see that playing out? I think, again, it's, we're at, at a crossroads. Um, the U.S. anyway has been in, 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 in moral and in, in terms of interest-based withdrawal from the region anyway since they withdrew from Iraq over a decade ago. But very much also since the beginning of the Iraq war in 2003, the U.S. image and legitimacy in the region has been in decline. And I think that what we see now, this unequivocal support for Israel, in spite of the blatant and obvious violations of international humanitarian law, war crimes being committed, we're actually seeing that, um, you know, the, that, that, that the U.S. support here is, is another death nail um, to the reputational standing of the United States in the region, which I think is, is highly problematic if you consider um, the role that the U.S. used to play and, the fact that, and also the ambitions that the United States still have in the region, in the global south in particular. So we've seen from the outbreak after the 7th of October, uh, very early on in, in the early stages of the war, we've seen already the global south anyway turning you know, against the United States, against the West, and very much in support of Palestine. Um, and now we've seen even a shift in global public opinion, including in the West, shifting against this war just because, you know, the, the, the Israeli government is very much unhinged in terms of how they how they conduct this operation, which is not at all in keeping um, with any of the norms and values that Western countries apply and, and, and preach um, to their warfare. So even despite all the problems that we've 
had in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, where, you know, there have been uh, violations of international humanitarian law um, on occasion by British or American troops. None of that would amount to the sort of atrocities that have been committed by the Israelis um, in, in, you know, in blatant disregard of international humanitarian law. And what would have, what would have been needed now, as the U.S. is anyway in, in competing against China and Russia and against other players in, in the region and across the global south, what would have been needed is leader, a leadership position where the U.S. really takes a, a position based on principle. Um, and that would have meant a position that would be critical, not just of Israel, but particularly critical of that Israeli government, that very particular ethno-nationalist uh, far-right government, and taking a clear position there, and they didn't do that. I think that will have, for, for years and probably decades to come, will have a ma major impact on, uh, on the reputational standing of the United States in the region. Do you think that reputation will be even further damaged by... Uh what uh, one commentator I read said that uh, um, that it is now difficult to even pretend that the West has a has a moral stand. The U.S. government has a moral stand, given that the stand in, in the Russia-Ukraine war is mm. is diametrically opposed to what we see in the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Again, again, it comes at a, at a very problematic time because for the last year and a half, the U.S. in particular, but also European countries have been trying to rally global public opinion in the global south around the idea that Russia is, you know, are the bad guys. And certainly with what they're doing in, in, in Ukraine, they are the bad guys um, and they need to be called out for that. But the problem is the, the credibility that, you know, the U.S. thought it had and the West hoped it had has been completely shattered in, in terms of their, their standing. So while most people in the Global South don't endorse what Russia is doing in Ukraine, they, they just see that you know, they, they speak with two tongues and, um, and, and obviously there's been quite a lot of hypocrisy by what the US and Europe preach when it comes to Ukraine and what they don't preach uh, when it comes to, to Israel in, in Palestine. And I think that gap, this say-do gap between what you preach and what you actually do is so obviously so blatant so for so much for everyone to see in a way that you know people have been looking at the, the conflict in Palestine for decades obviously uh, understand that this is not a new phenomenon um, that there has been quite a lot of say do quite a big say do gap for, gap for years but what we see now is that it's 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 so obvious it's no longer deniable and it's it's average people people who've been kind of uh, favorable um, of Israel have never really taken an interest in the cause of Palestine are now seeing what this co conflict is all about and 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 I think particularly that the U.S. is not being able to present a balanced position on this in any shape or form, despite everything being so much in the open, is a major problem um, and very much plays in the hand of the, into the hands of the Russians in Ukraine, but also plays into the hands of, um, of any other competitor who's trying to undermine the U.S. standing in the world. What do you think are the dangers of contagion uh, in the region? So the dangers of what? The contagion in terms of spreading this, uh, spreading this conflict um, elsewhere in the region. How do you oh, see that? Now, the, the problem is Palestine, it has been, and that's something that I think even many Arabs have been in denial of, and, and many Muslims have been in denial of as well in the last couple of years, that Palestine remains a very important regional lieu de memoir as a sort of integral element of identity for, for Arabs in particular, but also for Muslims. It kind of stands representative for the anti-colonial st struggle 
um, in 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 the world in the global south. Palestine has big, you know been for seventy odd years. Um, being somewhat at the forefront of that, where Israel being presented obviously as the as a sort of uh, Western outpost in the region, in this sort of struggle, what Palestine represents is far more than just Palestine. It's not just about the humans in Palestine. It's not just the slaughter of uh, Palestinians. It's also what this represents. This struggle, and it 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 has been always has been a somewhat a canvas that anybody can use to kind of project their own grievances on. And it's been it's been a rallying point for for people in the region, particular for for publics in the region, um, for people in the region, and and that sort of rallying point um, has for many years been denied, or people have said it has died down. The the Palestinian cause is no longer important. Obviously, with the Abraham Accords, uh, you know, where the UAE have uh, with other partners have basically signed on to an agreement with Israel without any without any requests or conditions in return, um, and people have thought. And particularly Israelis have thought that this meant that Arabs are no longer interested in the cause of Palestine. And obviously the opposite is true. We see now even in the UAE and other countries that have signed on to the Abraham Accords, we see that people are outraged at the mobilization effect that, that Palestine still has for most of these people in the region is still outstanding and probably more so than ever. And I think this in, in itself um, cannot be under, underestimated. The longer the war carries on, the more there will be other groups, mostly non-state actors, who will buy into that. We see, we obviously see Iran's so-called axis of resistance with the Houthis at the forefront in Yemen, really taking over a or trying to take over some sort of leadership uh, role in fighting uh, for the Palestinian cause. Uh, and that is something that is obviously uh, very, very problematic because these are non-state actors that nobody really controls that have a large degree of agency. We have Hezbollah in the north of Israel. Um, and the more Iran and their and its surrogate uh, and, and proxy network getting drawn into this conflict, the more this becomes a regional conflict. And, and, and that remains a, a large concern that uh, Israel doesn't know that they're playing with fire. Bibi Netanyahu in particular, very much an arsonist. He probably would like to have a regional escalation because it would give him more of a pretext to even, uh, you know, uh, uh, lash out at Iran and, and, and its proxies in, in a way that he never could, but now would have a somewhat legitimate claim um, and, and so this, whatever happens in Gaza right now is very much the, the ground zero for a potential larger regional flare-up. And I think this, e- even if this war goes now into a somewhat a more a benign sort of stage in the next coming weeks as the Israelis are withdrawing, I think we're still in a position where, um, you know, what happened in Gaza now is an inflection point that, could, that will lead to more polarization and that will make the, the region a lot more insecure. How damaging do you think the current situation, uh, the current onslaught um, in Gaza is for the Israeli, um, uh, for Israel, I should say? I think the Israelis are completely blindsided and um, um, oblivious to what's actually going on in the world. They, you know, Israelis, when you speak to, you know, people I know, who I know in Israel, uh, on, on, on various sides of, of the political divide as well, they they are in their own little, trapped in their own little uh, little echo chamber, very much based on the victimhood and paralysis and paranoia that was really uh, that that was uh, that would that was uh, you know kind of triggered by the the massacres of the seventh of October. If you look at that, um, Israelis are completely oblivious to what this war does to their own standing. Um, they're they're obviously trapped in this echo chamber, which is very much curated by the government. The Israeli government makes makes sure the the censorship of the military, in particular, makes sure that none of the sensitive information that we might see in the West 
uh, get leaked into the public. Even, you know, newspapers like Haaretz, who are usually, you know, uh, very much uh, on the forefront of, of good journalism, find it very difficult to, to kind of push certain stories. And when they do push very good stories, as they do, they don't really get read by the vast majority of Israelis. And even Israelis who have been very balanced um, and, and, and nuanced when it comes to a two-state solution. The issue that we have is that we have a, an extremely polarized Israeli public that wants revenge. They don't, are completely blindsided and oblivious to their standing in the region. Um, and I think even the most pro-Israel countries in the Arab world, like the UAE, for example, will find it very difficult now to continue with the Abraham Accords. I mean, they will. So there's no in indication that they will cancel the Abraham Accords, but they will have to kind of downgrade their relationship with Israel um, uh, because that's what the public wants. Um, even the Saudis now, who were very close to really, you know, honestly entering into a normalization discourse with the Israelis, will find it very hard to do so. So if Israel doesn't change, especially if it doesn't get rid of these radicals on, on, that are in government now, Israel will, will be extremely isolated across the region. And I, I would also say increasingly isolated in the Western world. I think what has been uh, revealed now, the, 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 the Israeli aggression that we've seen now, the discourse, the, the almost genocidal um, rhetoric coming out from officials in Israel, has been has been there in the open for everyone to see, and I think that will that that has caused the damage among you know average audiences also in the West, who've you know who've never been necessarily pro or or against Israel, who are now becoming more pro-Palestinian, even if they completely condemn everything that Hamas has done on the 7th of October. It has kind of led to a situation where those people who understand the region. Um, and even those who don't understand the region are now pivoting towards a pro-Palestinian anti-Israeli position. And so for, for Israel, this has been a strategic defeat on, on the battlefield as well as in the, in, the, in the global court of public opinion. And I think that is probably the more damaging aspect of this, of, of this war is not only that they're not achieving the objectives on the ground, but they're actually left isolated um, globally in a way that I think it will be very difficult for, for Israel to continue what they have built over the last couple of decades uh, in terms of their freedom of maneuver in the region, their ability to reach out to Arabs, the, their ability to feel somewhat safe in the region, despite you know, decades of constant fighting. Um, and I think that, will be, that, that era has ended now, and Israel will go back to a, a, a status quo uh, probably pre-1990s. Pre uh, where Israel is quite isolated and where they are in an extremely insecure environment where most Arabs will be very, very anti-Israeli. Given the rhetoric that's coming out of, um, as you rightly pointed out, the very right-wing government of Israel, you know, some senior ministers have um, openly called uh, for, for another Nakba. Mm. There have been calls for um, uh, eviscerating the entire population uh, in Gaza and, and build settlements there. Um, and now there is this um, there is this recent um, uh, statement by both by the U.S. the the ambassador the Israeli ambassador to the U.K. as well as mm. Netanyahu himself, saying that the two-state solution is not possible anymore. What is your sense of the possibility, the chances of peace here? Look, there isn't an easy solution to this, and it's not like there. If if there was one, it would have been advanced by now. I think there is a global consensus on what can be, what should be done, and there will no, won't be any security and no justice for Israel without justice and security for the Palestinian people, which means two-state solution. How this will look like might be, uh, you know, this is still something that needs to be determined. 
But I think there is a there is a there's still a consensus also in the Western world, including the United States. That's still not just a consensus; it's official policy that the two-state solution is the only way forward. While I, I agree that the two-state solution now is less likely than it has been years ago, decades ago, um, there is still no better solution to this. The one-state solution that has been advanced by the uh, Israeli ambassador to the UK or by Netanyahu, who obviously part of the far-right Likud movement, is certainly not um, is not in keeping with. Uh, international law is not in keeping with uh, norms and values in the Western world when it comes to, in the end of the day, you know, while, you know, apartheid is being practiced in the West Bank and in Gaza, and particularly in the West Bank, um, you know, the West is turning a blind eye to it. But nonetheless, nobody would want this to be official policy. So, you know, a one state solution would be, would mean that you would solidify not only occupation, but you basically a system whereby Palestinians will be second or third or fourth class citizens. Um, and that is something that no one in the West would officially endorse, even though they're now turning a blind eye to what is de facto already an apartheid system in the West Bank. So the, the, the issue to all of that is really that, um, you know, you, for, for Israel's sake as well, if it wants to maintain a, a security and stability for its own people and wants to maintain its, its sort of identity as a Jewish state as well, it's in, in Israel's interest to kind of you know, let go and and swap territories and swap uh, settlements potentially um, to allow for a, a you know a, an Arab Palestinian state to be de- developed in the West Bank and in, in Gaza, and that means some of the settlements will either have to be evacuated or other settlements will have to be included on the side of Israel and swapped for 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 uh, territory somewhere which is now part of of Israel proper. So I think you know moving. I'm not saying it's a simple one, but it's the only one that will will bring peace. But the problem is the international community has done absolutely nothing to advance this. And for this to work, you would, the international community would have to put pressure uh, on, on Israel in a way that, you know, you would put sanctions on Israel that bite, which obviously not the Biden administration wasn't willing to do, Trump wasn't willing to do. Um, and, and that's where the problem somewhat comes in, because most likely Biden will lose the next election and Trump might return. But Trump is someone who is a deal maker. And I think if the Gulf states, with all their money and all their relationships, all their networks around the Trump uh, sort of uh, team and uh, on the far right of the GOP in America, if they kind of brought their ideas together and put pressure on Trump and offered him a deal that he can't refuse, Trump might actually be the most unlikely president to actually get something done uh, if if it was a uh, quid pro quo. And I would also say that the, 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 the time of Bibi Netanyahu is up. So Netanyahu is most likely not going to survive this war, uh, which means there is a chance that Israel would kind of move back to the center, far away from the fringes of, of radicalism. And I think that is that is another chance, another opportunity with a more moderate leader coming in in Israel that would be willing to make the sort of sacrifices that need to be made on Israel's side. Uh, Professor, if I could challenge you a little bit on that. There was a recent survey in, in Israel in which... Um... 1.5 people, 1.5 percent of uh, the Israeli Jewish population said that uh, the bombing in Gaza is um, is too harsh. Uh, the remaining said that it it wasn't. Do you still uh, think that there there are prospects? There could potentially be prospects of a more um, uh, left wing or left uh, wing or even center-left or even center-right government, given that Israel actually has been moving to the right over the last couple of decades? No, I wouldn't say there is, there's no room for a left wing. The, the Israeli left has been defeated years ago. I mean, there's nothing left of it. Even the intelligentsia is no longer there. And I don't, you know, first of all, we need to understand Israelis 
as collective, the 7th of October is a collective trauma. So we're still very close to this collective trauma. At the same time, there are those people who have been traumatized the most, those people who have lost people uh, on the 7th of October, those who are still have hostages in Gaza, who are the, who are the ones who are now turning to be putting, putting most pressure on the government to make uh, concessions to Hamas in the negotiations. So you, you can hurt and at the same time support military pressure and dialogue. Um, so I don't think one negates the other. Um, but I would also say that it is, in Israel, it's been actually the, the, the people on the far right who were willing to make the most sacrifices and concessions to the Palestinians, uh, one of them being Ariel Sharon, who nobody would have ever imagined. You know, he was the guy who kind of caused the second intifada, but then in 2006 was willing to withdraw from, from Gaza, which, you know, I think a left-wing uh, or more moderate, um, weaker uh, sort of leader w was unable to do. Um, so obviously we're not where we were in the 1990s or early 2000s. Israel has moved uh, dramatically to the far right. Um, but I think if there's a realization, and again, perceptions can be can be shaped. At the moment, nobody is shaping any perception. There's no honest discourse in Israel over what is a viable solution to this. Nobody's going to. Nobody's talking about the day after. But the, these. But I think we've seen over the last two, three weeks, more and more people asking the question of what will come after that. And a lot more Israelis are saying, you know, you can be very harsh on Palestinians. And many of them obviously support this, this absolutely atrocious military campaign in Gaza. Um, but they're also saying once Hamas is removed, what, what comes next? I don't think Hamas can be removed, definitely not militarily. But if there was a viable political solution and a viable political alternative to the current status quo, where the Palestinian Authority is encouraged and strengthened, you could kind of build something that, um, that, that would allow Palestinians to buy into as well. And I think that this, you know, without a solution being advanced tangibly at the moment, I think we'll get to a point as time moves on and as the war becomes less and less winnable, as it's already been, you know, I think it is already a strategic defeat. But if that realization really kicks in, I think we're, we, we'll get to a realization also in Israel where dialogue discourse will say, actually, despite of what happened on the 7th of October, or maybe because of what happened on the 7th of October, for this to never happen again, we actually need to make sure that we rid ourselves of occupation and of these territories that Israel is currently occupying and allowing for a state to emerge. And finally, Professor, given that uh, the Israeli government seems to be, uh, despite this ostensible strategic defeat, as you put it, Israeli government seems to be pressing ahead with its uh, uh, plans, uh, with its um, escalation in the war, if I can say that. And, and now there's uh, a lot of talk in the last 24, 48 hours about what, are they, what they're calling as voluntary displacement of, mm. um, of people in Gaza. Uh, how viable do you think that plan is, and uh, do you see that um, happening? No, I don't see that happening. I don't think there is anybody in the in the West, not no leadership, no government in the West, and they're the ones who are the most pro-Israel, who would support this. Um, and you know, those, and, and we also shouldn't we should differentiate between what is political circus in Israel as well as outside of Israel. Those people are most pro-Israel in, in America, in particular. Um, they're part of a political circus. They're trying to score points. They're, you know, they're, we, the U.S. Is, is, is entering an election campaign, um, you know, and already in Israel, people are preparing for a re-election or for a new election. 
after this war. So everyone is kind of trying to score some points there, which doesn't mean, you know, that's rhetoric doesn't necessarily translate into policy. There is no no support for that solution, definitely not in the Arab world. Uh, Arabs, Arab states would not take them. Uh, Western countries would not take them. Uh, and obviously, because it would be an equivalent, voluntary or not, it would be a de facto ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from their own territory. This is something that no country, I think, would support. Um, no Western country would support. So it's not a viable option. Um, and we, we should also not be, you know, this is, it's a, it's a, it's a deflection uh, away from what is actually going on and deflection of the problem that Israel is, doesn't have a strategy. It's, it's been put forward by people who are unwilling to, to, to kind of uh, take these uncomfortable decisions, particularly in the Israeli government. Um, and, uh, you know, it will dawn on them that they will have to make these difficult decisions. And pressure from the U.S. is mounting as well. It's not the sort of pressure we would have hoped. Um, but, you know, with every day that Israel fights, it's losing more and more support in the United States among Jews globally, um, particularly also in Western countries and the United States. So Israel is losing on all fronts. Bibi is losing domestically as well. I mean, if there was an election now, Israel would def uh, Netanyahu and Likud would, would lose uh, dramatically. So, in, in, you know, being cornered, Netanyahu is trying to hold on to any straw that he can grab. Um, but in reality, however, um, the Israelis are preparing for a partial withdrawal from Gaza, which suggests that over the next week or so, we might we kind of might turn into phase two of this war, which is more of a low intensity counterinsurgency operation. But this still doesn't solve the problem, which is what are we actually what is Israel actually trying to achieve and what is the West actually putting forward um, as a viable option. And Biden is the one who has the most to lose, I think, internationally, because he's the one who wants to get reelected. And as it stands right now, most people, most Democrats who would have hoped for a more balanced, potentially a more left wing or centrist sort of view on this matter based on norms, principles and values. Those people have been disappointed and have turned their back on the Democratic Party. And if they don't vote, it will actually work in favor of whoever's going to run for the GOP, which is most likely Donald Trump. So, you know, as this moves on now we're in January, I don't think this war will continue with the current intensity in the next coming weeks. And my very last question, actually, if I can if I can ask one more, um, you uh, you pointed out correctly that the the public opinion in the West has uh, shifted massively over the last few weeks. Uh, the governments in the West, however, their stance uh, has been rather slow to shift and still in a lot of places hasn't really shifted. What do you ascribe, given your experience you've been, you've been in this area, you've been working in this, this is your area of expertise, what would you ascribe, if I can say this, apathy of the Western governments to? Look, Israel has been very, very successful in building information networks, and they've done it for decades across particularly the, the key sort of um, the key um, uh, the key capitals in in the West, you know, Paris, London, Washington, Berlin. Uh, in terms of rallying, you know, building lobby groups, uh, you know, uh, creating bottom-up sort of civil civil societal uh, networks of of people who have become advocates of Israel, and they've been very, very good and very united in 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 in, in projecting a, a very united line on Israel, and um, that also comes at a time when the Palestinian cause is still very divided. I mean, there isn't nobody speaks with one voice for. Palestine and the Arab world doesn't speak with one voice, not even the Gulf countries are speaking with one voice in terms of their lobbying and their engagement. And when you know, the US is trying to look for partners for a solution, 
in, in Palestine. They're not finding one line. They're not finding one line uh, with, um, with, with anyone in the Arab world, which makes it very, very difficult. So if you're fighting a united approach that the Israelis have put forward, uh, it works in their favor. And that lobbying has obviously, they have bought a lot of credit uh, with those people in government in, in, in key countries. But I, at the same time, also, I think Islamophobia is on the rise. And I think Islamophobia is something that, the, that really plays into the hands of, of the Israelis. And it has been instrumentalized by Israel for years, domestically um, and decades, but also has been instrumentalized across Europe. And the sentiment that we see across Europe, maybe less so in the UK when compared to France or Germany or other countries like the, the Netherlands, for example, I think Islamophobia is an, is an issue that um, has penetrated even, you know, it used to be a far-right issue. Um, it has become a very centrist sort of accepted view, which kind of gets uh, molded and, 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 and merged with uh, sentiments of xenophobia and anti-migration and narratives that are also very uh, prevalent here in the UK. Um, that is, you know, in this kind of context, policymakers feel like they can't take a very strong uh, position on Palestine because they're feeling like they're taking a position uh, in favor of uh, those citizens with migration background. And I think people who have a migration background, many of them who are Muslim in Europe, feel ostracized already. And that's the phenomenon that, phenomenon that we're seeing in Germany, for example. And um, the German rhetoric in defense of Israel is one that at the same time gets mixed up with a rhetoric which is anti-migration. And the, 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 the basically the quintessential narrative that is coming out of Germany, for example, is you either stand with the Israelis who are white and you know Judeo-Christian have the same values as us, or you stand with uh, migrants who are Muslim, um, and and that sentiment kind of leads to a polarization where the the average German or the average French are saying, okay, if I have to have that kind of binary choice, which is a false binary choice, I stand with Israel, and I think that's kind of the overall other trend that we're seeing, which is extremely dangerous, and works in favor of Israel, where policymakers are saying, you know, uh, we want to, they're even using these sort of narratives to advance their own uh, policy, not just far-right groups, but even centrist uh, uh, political parties. Dr. Adrias, thank you so very much for your time. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was our conversation with Dr. Andreas Krieg, uh, who's an associate professor at the School of Security Studies at King's College London, a fellow at the Institute of Middle Eastern Studies, currently seconded to the Royal College of Defence Studies. He's also the director of the London-based political risk company MENA Analytica. Uh, who was sharing his thoughts with us. Some excellent things um, that we learned from that. Um, I mean, from his experience in the Gulf region, uh, Palestine, Israel, Syria, the, the geopolitical dynamics that he's he's seen, how he's shaped the region, um, the, the current situation over there in Palestine and how... Uh, what kind of different challenges are are there? And based on his expertise, a lot of different things that he he mentioned as the role of external actors in influencing um, the conflict and other such uh, things as well. Um, before going to the news, uh, of course, there is um, um, a lot to cover, um, and uh, we will be uh, continuing on this 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 topic um, just for for a little while after the news as well. But before we go for for, for a short break, um, Jalice, what uh, I mean, what does Islam teach us uh, in regards to 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 all of this? 
Yeah, so I mean, bef- before we before we uh, did speak about uh, we, we we heard our guest, we did speak about various things that Islam says. Whereas uh, where we spoke about how the Caliph Umar, um, Hazrat Umar, made, how he uh, you know uh, made a place uh, where you know those who were uh, where he he he, he um, uh, sorry the the word is escaping where he ordered allowance of money and food to be made available for some from christian lepers and how islam in the history of islam how it's helped those in need and those in medical need as well and this is something that we've we've uh, spoken about as well um there's one, one thing that of course because we're talking about the the conflict and how how you know uh, how uh, the article that we were talk uh, spoke about how it's uh, how people have targeted uh, where hospitals uh, you know, during during time of conflict or during war and uh, you know these sort of things but the, this is something that we should remember is that Islam, the teachings of Islam, when it comes to to war, and and of course when we speak about war in Islam, we always 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 speak about it in 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 the defensive uh, uh, defensive war because every war that was fought, every battle that was fought by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, were all for defensive uh, battles. And he instructed his companions whenever they would go out for defensive battle, whenever they would go out to defend themselves, he instructed his companions various rules that they should follow when they go out, and uh, you know uh, when they go out to 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 fight <clears throat> those who were oppressing them. And the Holy Prophet told his companions that you, that they should not steal from from the spoils or deceive people they should not mutilate the bodies of enemies they should not they should they should avoid killing women children you know the elderly and 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 places of worship uh, you know they should strive for peace and treat people kindly uh, they should respect what others consider sacred uh, they should they should they should uh, refrain from from cutting down fruitful trees now a, a lot of this is all mentioned by the Holy Prophet, the, the Muhammad, who, who instructed his companions that they should follow all of these, and and we see another very important one was they should not tamper with the water, the the, the well, the water well of of that place where they are, where of the where they where the people who oppress them, where they get their water from. Now, all of these rules, if you look at them, if you break them down, the the two that are that all of them they 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 they, they highlight various aspects of of, um, of 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 matters but the the two things that I would like to highlight is one he said avoid killing women children and the elderly and 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 places of, of worship and the second one was the avoid uh, tampering with the water well now what do we see what what did we see in the article we, we saw that it has become an a a, 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 a a practice where people would target hospitals um you know uh, targeting hospitals during war by by claiming that they're you know they're targeting terrorists even uh you know when there's evidence later proves otherwise and then you know when when hospitals we know that when hospitals are destroyed people lose access to essential medical care you know leading to more deaths and and suffering and the the destruction also contributes to long term public health crisis and as seen in Iraq and now and now in Gaza and the the antibiotic resistance can spread and this is something we mentioned last week and you know causing a lot of 
deadly infections that affect not only the immediate conflict zone but also areas you know far beyond and and rebuilding for like we mentioned like we read in the article rebuilding all of this rebuilding the the healthcare infrastructure is very challenging and it's something that that the impact that lingers for very very long and and you know creates it's very dangerous environment for those that are there and, and, and for the future generations as well. And that's why when we see what's happening today and when we link it back to how the Prophet, how the Holy Prophet instructed his companions, the rules that he gave them and instructed them that they should they should refrain from doing so and so and they should they should not tamper with the water world, they should not uh, they should avoid killing um they should avoid killing any any women or children or elderly. This all is something that we need in this day and age, and when we see, you know, uh, uh, um, something that's wrong, as 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 Muslims and as people, we we should, uh, uh, um, we we should of course speak up about it. And there's a hadith of the Holy Prophet where he says that if you see something wrong, then then you should physically try to stop it. With whether it be two people quarrelling, then you can physically intervene and try to get them to calm down or to stop it or if if you cannot stop it physically then at least use your your voice to to, to remind them that what they're doing is wrong and try to uh, guide them in the right direction and if even that if you're not able to and there's various other steps but he even said that even if you're not able to physically stop or if you're not able to use your voice then at least within your heart at least you should see that this is something wrong um, and and have this feeling within your heart that you know something that is happening is 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 not right. And the the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the Promised Messiah, on whom be peace. <coughs> excuse me. He says that, uh, and I quote: He said, "Just reflect upon the sincerity and devotion of our chief and master, Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him." The Holy Prophet stood firm against all f- forms of evil. Now, this is the character. This is the the Prophet who who we follow, and this is the the character that we follow. And as Muslims, this is something that we try to inculcate within ourselves. Most certainly, um, we will be speaking a little bit more about this uh, after the news as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's some very interesting things that we've seen over here and from the article as well and what you've discussed in regards to what Islam says. So just uh, a little bit more on that. Here's the 8 o'clock news. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Um, where we are discussing our first topic, the parallels between Iraq's past and the current situation in Gaza. If you are just tuning in, um, then as a reminder for you, the next uh, topics that we're going to be addressing are the massive impact of AI in 2023 and future life and trachoma, the leading cause of infectious blindness. So these are the three topics for the day. We're currently still speaking um, in regards to our first topic, uh, which is about the similarities and the parallels between Iraq's past and the current situation over there in Gaza. Um, Before um, we speak with our next guest as well, um, uh, of course, we we did touch on the destruction of health infrastructure and, and 
just quickly a little bit on that is that it not only does it affect immediate care but also contributes to long-term health crises as well such as the spread of antibiotic resistance uh, <coughs> resistant bacteria just like how we spoke about uh, last week as well so the collapse of healthcare systems in conflict zones as seen uh, in Iraq and Gaza facilitates the spread of antibiotic resistant bacteria the unchecked use of antibiotics in these environments coupled with disruptive uh, healthcare services leads to the emergence of superbugs the author mentions uh, irakibacter a, a superbug originating from conflict zones which has caused significant health issues globally the aftermath of uh, war creates conditions where antibiotic resistance thrives pose, posing a persistent threat to public health long after hostilities cease Mm-hmm. And we do have, <clears throat> excuse me, we do have uh, with us our next guest, Professor Elon. Professor Elon obtained his BA degree from the Hebrew, Hebrew University in Jerusalem in 1979 and the, uh, um, the Doctor of Philosophy from the University of um, Oxford in 1984. He founded and directed the Academic Institute for Peace in Givat Hivava, Israel between 1992 and 2000 and was the chair of Emil Tumor Institute for Palestine Studies in Haifa between 2000 and 2006. Professor <coughs> Professor Elon was a senior lecturer in the Department of Middle Eastern History at the Department of Political Science in Haifa University, Israel, between 1984 and 2006. He was appointed as chair in the Department of History in the Cornwall campus 2007-2009 and became a fellow of the IAIS in 2010. His research focuses on the modern Middle East and in particular the history of Israel and Palestine. He has also written on the uh, multiculturalism, critical discourse analysis and on power and knowledge in general. Uh, Professor Eden, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Alaikum salam, very happy to be with you on this show. Likewise, we are very glad to have you as well with us and we are indeed talking about a very interesting topic and we're glad to have you with us to 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 answer the various questions that we have. So, from your perspective, drawing on your work in the history of the Middle East, uh, how do the humanitarian consequences of wars in Iraq and the current conflict in Gaza compare, especially concerning the impact in civilian uh, populations and displacement? Yes, I think there is there is a room for for, for comparison. Uh, but of course there are also uh, differences. The rule for comparison is the, the dehumanization of uh, the people who are being targeted as part of the military operation, whether it was the Anglo-American alliance in 2003 or the Israeli army uh, uh, today. And I think that dehumanization is, is very important to, to understand because it is done on the basis of allegedly uh, an agenda that uh, condemns the other side of being dehumanized, a dehumanizer or a terrorist uh, or savage, uh, and, and using this narrative that are actually the most civilized side comes to uh, defeat the, the uncivilized side, by, uh, and that gives it a license to have this massive killing. Of course, the killings in Iraq was even larger in terms of numbers, but had the same the same kind of 
effect on the population. And there's another uh, comparison which I think is very, very important. And this is the difference, the imbalance between the kind of, I would say, weapons or resources for an armed struggle that are at the possession of the colonized, the occupied, and the kind of military capacity uh, and the kind of uh, lethal weapons in the possession of the occupier and the colonizer. And, and there you get this kind of different images between those pilots, whether these are American, British, or Israeli, who only have to push a button in order to kill hundreds, or if not thousands of people, including women and children, and the more gory kind of picture, if you want, of one person who's part of a guerrilla warfare that kills a, a civilian. And it's always the second image that is the one that is highlighted to show that this is indeed the war between the, uh, you know, the, the people of the light against the people of darkness. So I think there the comparison is very important, the justification for the use of power, the dehumanization of the, in this case, two Arab communities, one Iraqi, one, one Palestinian, and the kind of uh, giving a license to kill in the name, supposedly, of uh, a civilized uh, a set of values uh, that is uh, represented by states such as the, um, the United States. Uh, or Israel. Mm-hmm. And and uh, building on your work in the history of, of Israel and Palestine, how have past conflicts in the in the region, including Iraq, uh, shaped the social fabric and political landscape? And how might these historical patterns be influencing the the ongoing conflict in Gaza? Yes. Well, there is there is always a regional historical context, and there is a more local Palestinian historical context. So the regional historical context is very important is, of course, the kind of political system that uh, colonial powers, Britain and France, established already at the end of the First World War, uh, a, a system that uh, created, uh, instead of a one united Arab nation, which was the uh, most uh, important objective of the uh, early Arab national movement, wherever it existed, and fragmented this Arab world into small, smaller uh, nation, nation states uh, with the hope that by divide and rule you can uh, keep the Middle East as, uh, as an important strategic asset uh, for the West. Now, this kind of sectarianism that was imposed from the outside uh, uh, contributed negatively to the uh, uh, fabric, the social fabric, and if you compare compare it to uh, the way different sects and different religions and different communities lived and let live before uh, the First World War, to the way they were militarized and then pitted one against the other uh, in the more modern era, you can see the historical context of, of an influence from the outside that uh, accentuates or, uh, or rather increases the problem of fragmentation from within that also can disintegrate countries as happened in Syria. Uh, and of course, in the case of Palestine, you have to have a more focused historical context because here it's not just Western imperialism and colonialism that takes apart a society that knew how to live together and turns it into a more fragmented society. Here you add also 
Indian movement of Zionism as as a very important factor, and it is the settler colonial uh, very uh, uh, known objectives of any settler colonial movement to displace and replace the indigenous population. That is the most important concept for understanding what happened in Gaza. And if you allow me, I will just add a few sentences because I think not everybody knows how the Gaza Strip was created. And that's very important to, to explain it to people. There was no Gaza Strip before 1948, before the creation of the State of Israel and before the Nakba, the catastrophe of 1948. There was no Gaza Strip. It was a very beautiful town of Gaza, by the way, with three very nice communities, uh, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim communities living very well together, both in Gaza, the city, and in small villages around. Israel created the Strip in 1948 in order to have kind of a receptor for the hundreds of thousands of refugees of Palestinians. It expelled during 1948 and created Gaza as the largest refugee camp in the world. And the the last phase of this expansion were the villages on whose ruins the settlements that uh, Hamas attacked in 1948 were built. So you have this context of an ongoing ethnic cleansing, an ongoing settler colonial project of displacement and replacement that has begun even before 1948, but definitely was there in fact in 1948 and still goes on today and the Palestinian resistance to this ethnic cleansing. And this is something very particular to, to Palestine because settler colonialism was not relevant to Iraq, for instance, if you, to, if you take the two places. There was no settler colonialism in Iraq. There was definitely an imperial colonial attempt to, to, to take over Iraq and this whole idea of separating the Iraq into Sunni, Kurdish, and, 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 and Shiite communities. So that there was a, it is part of the same story. But this is a particularly story. And maybe the only comparable, comparable example we have in the history of the Middle East is Algeria, where uh, uh, France was also thinking of turning Algeria into a settler colonial project and, and part of France, which, which failed. But in Palestine, the struggle continues, of course, because the settler colonial project of Israel has managed to expel half of the Palestinians and take over all of historical Palestine. But half of the Palestinians are still in Palestine, and the Palestinian national movement is still active. Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, unfortunately, this doesn't work very well for the future in terms of bloodshed and, and violence. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor Ilun, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for answering our questions and giving your view on, on what is um, currently happening. We do hope to have uh, a uh, have you on um, again we we hope that you do have a lovely week and a beautiful uh, uh, beautiful beautiful day and lovely week ahead uh, thank you very much for joining us thank you very much for having me on your program thank you thank you that was professor elon he is uh, he who obtained his ba degree from the hebrew university in jerusalem in 1979 and the doctors of philosophy from the university of oxford in 1984. Mm. um i think um uh, a very interesting topic uh, uh and a discussion as well that you've just had with the professor um, I think just just to sum up um, this uh, this this segment uh, because it is something that we can go on 
uh, and talk about uh, at length. Um, but uh, just one thing that I would like to remind our listeners of, and this is something which we often uh, talk about and, and, and uh, reference as well whenever we're discussing this topic, uh, and that is of the sanctity of places of worship and sanctuary and uh, we we at least like you mentioned uh, all of the wars which were fought by islam in the era of the holy prophet muhammad may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him they were all defensive wars um, and in the verse in which allah the almighty has commanded the muslims to defend themselves he states and this is recorded in chapter 22 verse 40 and were it not that allah checks the people some by means of others they would have been de- demolished monasteries, churches, synagogues and mosques in which the name of Allah is much mentioned. Um, and we can see that uh, the, def- the defending of the Muslims and of Islam and uh, of, of course, the mosques and, and where they were in the city of Medina, it wasn't just to defend themselves or to protect themselves, but rather this was to de- uh, to defend all of these other places of worship in which Allah is often mem- remembered uh, and mentioned as well. And this was uh, the fundamental teaching uh, which the Holy Prophet of Islam, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was given by Allah the Almighty as well. Um, like I said, uh, we can speak about this at length, but uh, unfortunately time does uh, has gotten the better of us and we have to move on now to our second topic and that is of the massive impact of AI in 2023 and future life. So in 2023, artificial intelligence, AI, especially in the form of chatbots and large language models, has experienced rapid development and become inevitable in everyday life. Despite significant progress, including the success of applications such as OpenAI's ChatGPT and the adoption of newer LLM models such as GPT-4 and Gemini by Microsoft and Google, there are serious challenges and questions regarding the economic, legal and ethical impact. So, first of all, how are the governments reacting to developments in artificial intelligence uh, technology as seen in the UK summit and steps taken by US President Joe Biden? Well, recently, government leaders in both the UK and the US have engaged in uh, discussions about the safety of AI, responding to the increasing demand for guidelines in a field that is rapidly advancing. This activity precedes the AI Safety Summit hosted by the UK at Betchley Park. <clears throat> During a speech at the Royal Society, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak stated that the government is releasing its analysis of AI risks, incorporating assessments from intelligence agencies, and Sunak acknowledged the dangers associated with AI superintelligence, quote-unquote, and highlighted the absence of a regulatory framework for the technology. Sunak noted currently, and I quote, Currently, the only entities testing AI safety are the very organizations developing it, emphasizing that even these developers may not fully comprehend the potential capabilities of their models. Simultaneously, he reiterated that while it is the government's duty to address safety risks, the UK's policy is not to hastily enforce regulations. In a significant move, the government unveiled a £100 million fund to foster the potential of AI in life sciences and healthcare. Um, 
prior to this, the UK had already invested £100 million in AI Foundation Model Task Force. And Sunak also announced that the uh, government will endeavour to establish the world's first AI safety institute, which will meticulously assess, evaluate and test new AI models to comprehend their capabilities, exploring risks uh, ranging from social harms like bias and misinformation to the most extreme threats. Um, Just quickly, uh, in October 2023, Joe Biden enacted um, an executive order which he described as the most, quote-unquote, significant step in uh, any government has taken towards safe uh, deployment of AI. And during a press conference, the US president remarked, we're going to see more technological change in the next 10, maybe next five years than we've seen in the last 50 years. AI is all around us, he says. Much of it is making our lives better. But in some cases, AI is making life worse. Um, More on this in just a short while. But before we do so, we do have with us on the line Professor Angela Daly, who is a socio-legal researcher of uh, new digital technologies and data. She is a professor of law and technology at the University of Dundee, Scotland, jointly appointed in the Leverhelm Research Centre for Forensic Science and Dundee Law School. She researches... Um, uh, and advises governments, companies and NGOs on data governance issues and in 2022-2023 chaired an independent expert group on unlocking the value of public sector personal data for the Scottish government whose final report was published in August 2023. Assalamu peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hi there, thanks a lot for having me. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us. Um, Could you please uh, tell our listener uh, in regards to what your views are regarding the ethical challenges that arise with the development of AI technology and how they can be overcome as well? Well, (laughs) where to start with this? Um, I think um, it's important to remember that AI can be used for good things, but um, it also can be used in ways that are really problematic. Um, And in fact, there's a lot of um, emphasis on... I guess AI superintelligence or what sometimes is called the singularity, the idea that AI and other technologies will kind of get out of human control um, and then, you know, could cause all sorts of chaos or perhaps also good things too. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly we're more worried about the chaos. However, um, in reality, we already have kind of uses of AI and automated technologies that are uh, raising various problems. I think, as you mentioned, um, them being used in discriminatory and biased ways um, and also just in really inappropriate ways as well. Um, So particularly in things like public administrations, by governments, um, in welfare, where we've seen some um, real scandals in countries like Australia and the Netherlands about the use of automated technology in welfare systems in really kind of ridiculous and awful ways that Um, are not particularly sophisticated but caused a lot of problems. Um, So I think there's a kind of very widespread um, range of 
ethical issues that come up with the use of AI. A lot of it depends on the particular sector. Um, and also, I mean, currently, um, military uses of AI um, are quite concerning. In the current uh, Israeli war in Gaza, they're using artificial intelligence um, supposedly to uh, target um, bombs, um, well, which in itself is hugely ethically problematic, but also in ways that seem to actually be amplifying uh, damage um, and uh, human the loss of human lives rather than uh, reducing that. Um, so I think military use of AI in particular is quite uh, ethically concerning. Um, so I could kind of talk a lot more about various other ethically problematic uses of AI, but you did also ask kind of what can be done about it. Mm. Um, and I think that uh, it, that's really tricky, and that's where a lot of uh, people like myself are spending time uh, trying to um, work on it. Um, I think ultimately global consensus is really important around this and discussions, um, but also enforceable laws in countries to actually stop or set what are sometimes called red lines um, for particular uses of AI that are just so ethically problematic um, or legally um, dubious uh, threats to human rights um, that they just shouldn't be allowed and one such um, use of AI obviously the military uses um, have a you know are candidates for that um, potentially although in reality probably many countries won't um, ban military use of AI mm. um, but um, one candidate um, that is discussed quite a lot is police use of facial recognition technology um, particularly in public places um, and that is one where there's been a lot of discussion about whether that should be banned or not currently in the UK, um, it's not banned um, and it probably won't be anytime soon. Um, but there are kind of legal means and that can um, be used to address some of the most ethically problematic uses of AI if that's what governments want. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, also, as, as chair of the independent expert group for the Scottish government, how do you see the potential for using public sector data for public benefit, particularly uh, in the contact uh, uh, of, of AI, of course? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, AI, um, artificial intelligence, particularly machine learning models, which is a subset of artificial intelligence, um, needs a lot of data to be trained on um, to actually kind of create the model that then can be used later. Um, so the public sector in many countries, including in the UK and the devolved nations in the UK, does hold quite a large amount of data about all of us um, and particularly health data um through our interactions with the NHS, which is really valuable and really ri- a really rich kind of data set. Um, so f- that data has a lot of potential to be used uh, to train AI, uh, machine learning models um, for good purposes. Um, but it ne- in our view, it needs to kind of be done in ways that do produce public, if you're using public data, it should be producing um, public benefit. And in reality, a lot of the uses of this data are gonna be by um, the private sector. So so medical companies, tech companies um, that are looking to develop um, new AI, new machine learning models and other kinds of, um, for instance, drugs, uh, treatments, etc. So not just using AI. Um, so I think if the, yeah, the data is um, coming from the public, it, we should be getting something out of it. Um, and we should be kind of getting perhaps more out of it than we are at the moment. I think another really important aspect of this too is um, ensuring that we, the public, actually know what's going on uh, with our data. Um, that while in general, and there's quite a bit of research to show that the public are quite really supportive of 
research, particularly non-commercial research, but also to some extent uh, more commercial research as well, if it's producing um, societal goods. Um, but I don't think there's enough understanding of what is actually happening, uh, what who is involved, what companies are involved, um, and what is being produced in the end, um, and really a bigger public discussion and involvement of uh, publics in all of our diversity in um, at least different parts of the UK, if not um, more broadly in decision making um, about you know what are what would be an acceptable use of this data and what wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Most certainly, most certainly. And and lastly, there, how how do you see the balance between encouraging innovation in AI development and the actual need to protect human rights and individual privacy? I think the balance, honestly, is a bit too much um, in favour of innovation without mm-hmm. um, bounds and not. Um, so, the balance needs to kind of be redressed a bit more with regards to privacy, particularly when we're talking about personal data that AI is being trained on or is actually using. So, for instance, in the welfare scenarios or in health, personal data is definitely going to be involved in this. Um, I think really it's not a zero-sum game between innovation and human rights, um, although sometimes it is framed as such. Um, Really what we should be encouraging is kind of sustainable human rights-oriented beneficial um, use and development of AI and another kind of big aspect too is in the environmental um, cost of computing and of data um, which actually I think is going to be a big challenge for AI um, going uh, forward given the climate crisis um, in particular um, so it costs you know huge amounts of computing power which costs huge amounts of energy um, t- for AI to function um, and really I think we should be thinking very that in mind as well as human rights with regards to kind of what would be societally beneficial um, uses of AI but that doesn't mean that they don't exist and it doesn't mean that it's not possible Uh, but I think these need to be much more clearly in the discussion and in the UK particularly the UK government level but also to some extent the devolved nations as well I don't think there's been enough kind of consideration particularly of environmental aspects yeah yeah, no, no, I agree with that as well. Um, uh, thank you um, for, 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 for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight in regards to this very uh, important topic and something which uh, is uh, looming in the back of our minds, um, well, for, for, for most of us at least. Um, and so it is a very interesting topic as well. So uh, thank you uh, once again, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Uh, peace be upon you. Thank you very much. Uh, have a great day. Bye. Likewise. You too. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Professor Angela Daly, uh, who is a socio-legal researcher of new digital technologies and data. She is a professor of law and technology at the University of Dundee, Scotland, um, and uh, she was sharing her thoughts with us. I mean, Jalice, this is a very uh, interesting topic uh, in which we can see that there's so many there's there's concerns uh whilst there are there's pros and cons right so yeah. uh, i mean in the the the, the uh, there's there could be job displacement concerns where some economics are concerned that increased automation driven by advancements in ai and robotics could lead to the displacement of uh, certain jobs um but also at the same time um people argue that job creation and transformation is another perspective uh, which is needs to be emphasized uh, that while automation may 
eliminate some jobs, it also has the potential to create new jobs and transform existing ones as well. Automation can lead to increased efficiency, lower costs and the development of new industries and occupations. Um, there's obviously skill shift and job re- reallocation where economics often highlight the importance of skill in adapting to changes brought about by automation. As a technology evolves, there may be a shift in demand for, for certain skills and workers may need to acquire new skills to remain employable. Um, of course, this productivity gains an economic growth um, where some economics argue that automation can lead to uh, significant productivity gains, which in turn can contribute to economic growth. As businesses become um, more efficient, they may invest in innovation, creating new opportunities for employment. Um, and uh, But it's, it's important to note that the impact of AI and automation on jobs is likely to vary across industries and regions and the timing and extent of these changes will depend on factors such as the pace of technological adoption and the ability to of the work, workforce to adapt as well. But uh, th- there are some uh, um, things that we do need to be mindful of as well. Like, for instance... Um, because of this, um, and uh, Professor Angela uh, uh, touched on this as well, um, there, there there are some concerns as well, isn't it? Like uh, if um, if uh, due to AI, um, the information which is stored on your mobile device or any other uh, device as well, um, they might know that uh, you you have a, a, a whatever your polit- uh, political inclinations are, mm-hmm. um, and because of that, uh, uh, when I, AI comes to know about this, and there may be another party which uh, uh, gives you uh, and and it knows your likes and dislikes, yeah. and because of that, it can target you specifically. Um, and go make you from left to 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 right yeah. or, or or whatever right change your party or make you change your vote as well mm. so there's there's these kind of concerns as well and and also at the same time they, i mean we we do like i said have a lot to cover as well um and we do need to get move on to the next topic as well but there's there's a lot of things which we can address over here like ai um when we talk about uh this this acronym and obviously we talk about uh, artificial intelligence but in fact what we're actually talking about is automated uh, intelligence mm-hmm. so this is this is this is not re- some people say uh, and i ki- agree as well it's not artificial and it's not even art- intelligent mm. it's uh, it's automated uh, information which is stored um chat gpt and the likes of um obviously it it has a way in which it uh, it can um it can it, it can it can copy uh, us and uh, it can do so many different things and it can it can re, uh, produce information but it it's not actually producing information so sorry that that was actually a wrong word to use it's just uh, collecting all the information which has been stored there already mm. and, and his holiness uh, the fifth and current caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmad may Allah strengthen his hand he's also uh, mentioned this as well and he said that uh, um, uh, I'll actually read out the quote as well because it's uh, very beneficial. Um, 
He says that uh, um, uh, it, today the world around us is constantly evolving and advancing. Unquestionably, in the past few decades, the world has moved forward in leaps and bounds in terms of technological development. Every day, new forms of modern technology and scientific advancements are being developed. Um, but uh, uh, there is another quote in which he he speaks about uh, um, uh, this in particular. Um, about AI and he says that uh, given an example of how AI can uh, introduce bias and inaccuracies his holiness said that if you're going to write about the positive and negative aspects of something AI may unduly emphasize the negative aspects if you're preaching to someone or even an Ahmadi Muslim then they may not be able to analyze information properly as to what is correct and what is incorrect um and uh, and so it's it's important uh, that uh, he and he advised that you you can and should use you can use these things um but at the same time you need to evaluate and check it as well because of the information which uh, it produces it's from something which has already been stored yeah. um and so it 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 can be wrong information misinformation uh, and that's why that's why it's essential to actually check the uh, the the, the subtleties uh, and the inaccuracies which may be formed from that as well indeed indeed i mean like you said there's there's both pros and uh, cons for when we talk about ai and um, you know one thing that we sh- we should uh, just mention there is there was a quote that i wanted to, i wanted to uh, mention about his holiness but before i get to that there is just one thing that we should uh, know is that you know ai uh, we we must understand that it's something that hap- it did it didn't it didn't just happen overnight, right? Mm-hmm. Years of work has gone behind in the background, which has advanced tech so much that we are at the point where we find ourselves today. And when we look at Islam, we see that Islam says that advancements, uh, you know, enhancing the quality of life, uh, such as science and technology, were actively encouraged and embraced. Now, you know, these uh, if for anyone can just study the history of Islam. And uh, if the if anyone knows about the the golden uh, the golden era of Islam, as they say, where a lot of scientific advances was taking place, uh, mainly in in Iraq and in Baghdad, and and a whole uh, Darul Hikmah, as they say, uh, House of Wisdom, which was you know um, which was uh, made uh, where scholars, uh, Muslim scholars, came together and they advanced in various fields of science and technology, and and even uh, just 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 uh, one once uh, such scholar um, uh, for who who was literally the the man behind the camera where if it was not for his research we would not even have a camera today and that is uh, Ibn Haytham and he was the one who you know paved the way to 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 for mankind to to and, and did the research and did uh, came up uh, did the research and found out various things from 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 his various studies that enabled mankind that led us to today to have actually a camera where we can photograph various things so Technological advancement is something that when it's it helps the quality of life and and it helps uh, mankind in, in in the quality of life and health is something that is uh, appreciated and and something that Islam does uh, advance for. Um, having said that, we should understand that when we talk about AI, um, a very uh, a, a very a, a, a friend of mine once said when AI was a was a you know was the, was the hot talk during the year twenty twenty three. He said that it's good, of course, but one should not give their brain over to AI or their mind over to AI. They should you know they should use their own faculties and abilities and and 
And when doing so, they can, of course, implement certain things in AI which they need. Um, but it's not something that we can just give your mind over to AI. And His Holiness, he, he he said, when I say sorry, when I say give your mind over to AI, I mean that uh, you know you should be using your brain, you should be using your God-given faculties, and not just rely solely on um, AI. Uh, one thing that I do want to mention, His Holiness said that artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence, is not going to write something by itself. Rather, it is going to produce something based on the points you entered. So basically what you prompt it to to do now it is possible that some wrong information like like someone like you mentioned some wrong information can also be appeared through it so this is why it's important that we don't solely trust um ai and know that everything that it says is right because like you mentioned it it, it knows our it, if someone has a, a a political background or someone has an affiliation with a party or 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 um um as an AI knows these sort of things and, and can mm. actually alter or change your perception of, of that when it comes to voting time and can even, to such an extent, change someone's uh, whole opinion and change their vote. So this is something that we should be the, 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 you know, the, the, the as they say, the, the master of our mind and the, the captain of our soul. We should not just give this over to AI. Most certainly, most certainly. And like I said, uh, we, the, we, we can speak a lot more about this as well, but unfortunately time has uh, gotten the better of us. Uh, moving on to the last topic, the number four you remember is 0208-687-7878. If you would like to get involved in any one of the discussions that we're having today, um, we're now talking about trachoma, the leading cause of infectious blindness. Um, tr- uh, uh, this is actually caused, uh, this is the topic, uh, the last topic which we'll be addressing for the last 20 minutes. Um, and this is caused by the bacterium chlamydia trachomitis uh, transmission occurs through eye and nasal fluids especially in children um, infections are common in preschool children with prevalence uh, rates reaching 60 to 90 percent the infection can cause scarring and uh, um Trachomotus tri- uh, tracheasis uh, on the eyelids, resulting in impaired vision or blindness if left untreated. Uh, women are more susceptible to blindness due to close contact with infected children. Um, environmental factors such as inadequate hygiene, crowded households, limited access to water, and in- inadequate sanitation can cause tr- the transmission of uh, C. Tranc- uh, trachomitis, um, the disease of uh, hyperendemic. Uh, in poor areas of Africa, Central and South uh, America, Asia, Australia, and in the Middle East. Indeed, and before, of course, before going uh, talking about this uh, this topic, we do we should understand what it is, like you uh, highlighted, and what and how diseases are transmitted um, through it. And for that, we do have with us Professor David. Professor David is a specialist in infectious and uh, infectious and tropical diseases. Has a distinguished career in global health, beginning in the Gambia in 1978. He later became a professor of, commu- of communicable diseases at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, with roles at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases and leadership uh, positions at the school, including heading the clinical research unit and directing the Wellcome Trust Brunswick. Center. Uh, Professor David has been a prominent figure in tropical medicine and global health. His contributions led to honours such as a CBE from Queen Elizabeth in 2014 and Prince Mahidol Award for 
Public Health in 2020. Currently, he chairs a scientific and technical advisory group for the uh, WHO Department of Neglecting, Neglected Tropical Diseases and is involved in efforts to eliminate uh, trachoma globally. Uh, uh, Professor David served as the president of Royal Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene in 2019 to 2020. Uh, Professor David, Asalaamu As Alaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Good morning and thank you for joining us and thank you for being with us. And we do have, uh, we, we, we are talking about a very interesting topic and um, uh, something that, of course, needs to be uh, needs to be talked about as well. And um, before we, we, we have a couple of questions, but before we, we do go into the question, can you just give us, give, give us and give our listener a, a background of what trachoma, uh, what it is? Yes, of course. So trachoma is a disease of poverty. So it used to be endemic in the slums of London. In fact, 200 years ago, Moorfields Eye Hospital was founded, the first eye hospital in Europe to treat trachoma in the slums of London. And if you wanted to go and live in the USA 200 years ago, you were taken to the quarantine island, Ellis Island, where an immigration officer would examine your eye. And if you had trachoma, it was a disease of poor people thought to be infectious. They didn't want you in the USA. Mm -hmm. So you're on the next boat back to Europe. So a disease of poverty. But it disappeared from Europe as living standards improved. Mm -hmm. So it's caused by, as you say, chlamydia trachomatis, perhaps better known as a sexually transmitted infection. But in the case of trachoma, spread from eye to eye in places where hygienic standards are not good, spread by flies, by sharing cloths, towels, wiping your face when you can't wash your face because you don't have access to the water. Mm -hmm. So a disease of poverty and repeated infections, as you said, uh, among children eventually lead to scarring of the inside of the eyelid and the lashes on the upper eyelid turn inwards. So every time you blink, your lashes scratch your eye and it's painful. And eventually your eye, your cornea, the front of the eye is damaged and you go blind. And that's irreversible. Mm -hmm. I see, I see. And, and I know you just, you just mentioned um, you know, the, 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 how it uh, comes about. But what are the, the, the primary causes of trachoma, particularly in regions like uh, Africa? And, and what measures can be taken for, to, to prevent, uh, prevent this? Well, so, as I said, it, it's a condition these days of all many rural remote communities which don't have access to running water they may have to walk a long way to collect water from a well uh, there are a lot of flies because they don't have latrines and this is how the infection is spread but i have to say we have made huge progress in the last 20 years so for example in 2002 there were seven and a half million people with trichosis where the lashes scratched the cornea now we're down to one and a half million. Mm, wow. And in 2002, 1.5 billion people were at risk. Uh, we're now down to about 120 million. And 18 countries have met the WHO targets for eliminating trachoma as a public health problem. Mm -hmm. and so we've made huge progress. 
that's that's very very good to know. And of course, the the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community who in in Burkina Faso has been you know operating eye clinics and its uh, auxiliary organization um, has historically supported this initiative. Approximately two percent of the country's total population, equivalent to three hundred forty thousand people, are estimated to be uh, you know grappling with with blindness as well. And this is something that uh, a a hospital clinic has been set up in Burkina Faso by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community to help those um, with uh, with um, it's actually called the Masroor Eye Institute um, with a mission to to establish a cutting edge uh, facility providing the highest standard of eye care to patients um, uh, just just one one um, and moving on to our um, to the to the questions that we have uh, one is that in in addressing infectious diseases particularly trachoma on a global scale how has international um, collaboration played a significant role? So in the case of trachoma, a massive role, I would say. Uh, you know, for these neglected tropical diseases, for many of them, we have drug donation programs. So in the case of trachoma, when I first started working on trachoma in the Gambia in the 1980s, the treatment was to put ointment in both eyes twice a day for six weeks. And as you can imagine, doing that, to a two-year-old child is not easy. But then a new antibiotic came on the market called azithromycin, and we showed that one dose by mouth was enough to treat trachoma. The problem was that if you only treated the individuals, they got reinfected. So we then did studies with collaborators in the Gambia, Tanzania, and Egypt, and we showed that if you treat the whole village with one dose of azithromycin, you can get rid of trachoma. Mm-hmm. And so uh, last year, or the year before now, uh, the billionth dose of azithromycin was given, and it's donated free by Pfizer, the manufacturer. And this is the case for many of the neglected tropical diseases, uh, drug donation programs, which have had a huge impact. Mm, I see, I see. And uh, it's, um, uh, it, it is uh, a... a um uh, very, very good to know that there there is uh, a lot of work that is being done on this, and and uh, a lot of um, people are being treated uh, from this as well. And um, Professor David, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you very much for answering our questions. We do hope uh, that you have a uh, lovely day and a beautiful week ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Professor David, a specialist in infectious and tropical diseases, and has a distinguished career in global health. Some 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 very interesting uh, um, things that you that uh, he he mentioned, uh, especially in regards to the the difference um, in the last uh, two decades or so um, that we've seen in uh, in tackling this issue and how many people have uh, have uh, become um, better. Um, or, or the people who are who were at risk, uh, 1.2 billion, I think he he said, um, and how how much of a difference it, it has caused uh, 20 years later now, mm. uh, by the grace of Allah the Almighty. Um, just a little bit about uh, illness. Um, it, it states in the Holy Quran, chapter 26, verse 81, and when I am ill, it is He who restores me to health. Um, of course, he referring to God Almighty, and uh, there's actually a uh, narration of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in which he mentioned that there is no illness for which Allah the Almighty has not made the cure. 
So if we see any illness, um, whatever kind of disease it may be or any other kind of disability, whatever it might be, there is there is always a cure for it. Um, and it's just a matter of time for us to understand that and uh, be able to try and combat and tackle that as well. And, and so this is why uh, research, something which we were addressing in the in the previous topic, is so important. Um, and we should be never it should never be stagnant and just uh, sit idle and be uh, laxed that uh, we're content with everything. Rather, we should always be trying to progress um, and uh, become uh, 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 better uh, in ourselves and in our studies as well. Uh, we do have with us on the line our last guest for the show, uh, Martin Holland, um, the ho- who holds a biology degree from the University of York, a master's in immunology from King's College London, a PhD from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine with research positions at various institutions, uh, including the MRC Clinical Immunology Research Unit and the University of Edinburgh. Uh, his primary focus has been on the immunology um, and the control of trachoma in Africa. Um, and notably, he worked extensively on the immunology of trachoma in the Gambia, contributing to the partnership for the rapid elimination of trachoma. Um, assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us. Um, could you please tell our listener a little bit about how immunological system implicated, um, uh, uh, how it's implement, implicated in the development of trachoma, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so the disease itself um, is caused by um, a bacteria that lives in the um cells that line mucosal surfaces and in this case that of your eyelid um, and um, when that happens you mount a your your body recognizes that as being foreign and it makes an immune response as it would do to any other pathogen or in in or a vaccine um, and in this case the way that trachoma is actually clinically diagnosed is through recognizing um, the clinical signs which are in fact evidence of an immune response in the in the eyelid so you turn the eyelid over and you see these sort of you can see them with the naked eye but you usually use a two times magnification mm-hmm. um, and you can see the formation of what we call lymphoid follicles um, and these are like specialist bits of tissue that aren't normally there in the eye they're there subclinically but they quickly organize and they're sort of collections of the immune cells, the white cells um, from your from your um, blood that and lymphatics that, that collect there and they're there to mount an immune, re- immune response to the infection. Mm-hmm. And they those come and go with each infection and over the years each time they come and go and um, they leave a little bit of um, tissue behind as it as the as the infection repairs repairs those follicles, and that actually that's actually what starts to cause the actual really serious part of the disease, which you often see in adults, um, which is um, a fibrosis. So that's a sort of scar that forms in that. With your eyelid, of course, um, there's not much room for manoeuvre in terms of tissue elasticity, and it starts to contract that tissue. And that scar tissue builds up through the years, and that's what actually causes the the problems, which are turning inwards of the eyelid rim, 
and the eyelashes and they scrape actually physically causing pain they scrape the cornea start to damage the cornea and that's when you start to get impacts on vision so we're talking about a disease that ultimately can result in in what they call corneal opacity you can't see through cornea corneal damage mm. ulceration and, and in really severe cases complete sight loss mm. um we, we, we've spoken about uh, uh trachoma immunology um and uh, 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 something that we would like to understand as well as how this could contribute to broader investigations into infectious diseases and immunity as well okay so since since the identification of the organism way back in, in the early 1900s, people have been trying to make a vaccine mm-hmm. and trying to understand its um, its immunology. Um, and in the 60s and 70s, not long after it was first firstly grown um, in culture, um, we didn't really understand the different types of organism that there were. And um, there were a number of vaccine um, trials um, in Africa and the Middle East um, that attempted to to make um, a vaccine, um, really then basing it all on on the clinical response, and we didn't really understand that clinical response very well. Um, And the conclusion of those vaccine trials were that there was some evidence that we could um, stimulate an immune response that, that was protective in the short term, but it didn't last very long. And um, because of parallel experiments that they'd done in, in animal models, they thought actually there was a potential actually to cause harm. And as soon as we thought that there might be harm, of course, that, that stopped all vaccine trials. So the last field trial of a vaccine was in the end of the 70s, 1970s. Um, and, but really, um, when we re-examine what those were and what we understand now, there was actually evidence at, at post two years that actually did reduce the development of scarring. So there's been uh, the barrier to developing a clinic, uh, a chlamydia vaccine has been um, that worry about causing harm. And then most recently, um, there has been um, trials, one clinical trial, um, which the results are let, yet to come out, um, um, testing what they call a phase one of, of, a, of a synthetic vaccine for chlamydia. Um, what can it tell us about other infectious diseases and immunity overall? Um, well, the eye and turning over the eyelid actually is a relatively easy thing to do, um, and people can be trained to recognise the signs quite easily. So, what can, what, how can we use that? Well, it's not very an invasive test or anything. It's an, it's a window into the whole of the mucosal immune system. So, when we talk about the mucosal immune system, we mean things like your lungs, um, your um, um, GI tract, so your your gastrointestinal tract, mm-hmm. um, which are all mucosal surfaces, and they are connected. So um, you can find out and um, a lot by just looking at the eye and studying its responses at that mucosal surface about what could be happening at other mucosal surfaces and how they are connected. So it could be possible to develop an oral vaccine that would be effective against chlamydial infections in the eye um, or perhaps in the lungs because there's another type of chlamydia that's not the same but nearly related that can actually cause you to get um, a a pneumonia. 
So you can use it as a way to um, perhaps deliver, study um, complex, difficult um, immune responses at mucosal surfaces. So um, that's that's the way that it's largely perceived that we could use. We, it would be worth considering um, studying further and looking at broader uh, responses to other pathogens mm-hmm. at all mucosal surfaces. Yeah, no, no, that's very, very interesting indeed. And um, we would have uh, loved to have a little bit maybe more information about other things which are related to this as well. Uh, but unfortunately, time has gotten the better of us and we're coming up to the news now. Um, thank you, uh, Martin Holland, for, for being with us, for answering our questions. Uh, and we hope you have a wonderful week ahead as well. Peace be upon you. Goodbye. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was uh, Martin Holland, uh, who holds a biology degree from the University of York, a master's in immunology from King's College London, and a PhD from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical uh, Medicine, um, where he's worked extensively on immunology of uh, trachoma in the Gambia, contributing to the partnership of the rapid elimination of uh, trachoma. Some wonderful points uh, that he shared. Indeed, indeed, I agree. And, um, you know, Islam stresses a lot about practicing good acts and uh, of hygiene and cleanliness. In fact, the Holy Prophet, may, the, may, may Allah be, uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said that cleanliness is half of faith. Now, another example of, of cleanliness is, is the ablution that we, we perform, um, you know, before the, the every every prayer, every, the five daily prayers. You know, imagine what impact this has on our health and how much it, it helps us practice, you know, better hygiene. And His Holiness, the current head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, has, has stated that physical cleanliness is just as essential as spiritual purity because physical purity has a tremendous involvement with spiritual purity. Now we do uh, there there we, we can speak about this topic for at length, but we have come to the end of our show. Thank you for listening to us and here's the nine o'clock news.